Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. On this episode, we'll look back at an Iowa doubleheader weekend. We'll check out the latest on Joseph Newgarden after his big crash on Sunday. Is this the end of the line for Alex Pillow at Chip Ganassi in 2023? Will Power has claimed that Marcus Ericsson is the best racer in the series. That's a claim we'll also get into. We'll look at how Iowa came back stronger than ever with the backing of High V and more. So, JR, thanks for joining us once more. It's a shame you didn't get to race this weekend as planned, but did you enjoy the, watching the action from home? Yeah, enjoy would be a strong word probably, but uh, <laughs> not not being there. But but yeah, definitely watched watched all the events from the weekend and and watched with uh, watched closely. I guess I would say just for you know being a place not only that that I've definitely had the experience of kind of knowing what to look for and uh, it's it's somewhere that different teams different drivers all bring a little bit of a different flavor to what happens over the course of the weekend and and really when you think about you look at it from the outside okay it's two races it's barely any more total sessions than a normal race weekend would be so it's just one practice straight into qualifying and then park Ferme going into the first race no practice race two so from that perspective it's still very it was still very much a situation of teams that were going to be teams that were good by the end of the first practice session or I guess I would put it more the other way the teams that weren't good by the end of the first practice session they didn't have that much time to make things up and you're starting to get into a situation where okay are you are you going to start throwing a bunch of changes at at the car you don't get a chance to change the car between qualifying and the first race even so from that perspective even fewer opportunities to make changes than you normally would almost over the course of a regular weekend. Um, you know, a, a, obviously a huge points opportunity uh, for, for a lot of drivers over this course of this weekend. And now suddenly, now it suddenly feel before this race, it didn't feel like we were close to the end of the season. Now suddenly it does with only five to go. So uh, a lot to be looking out for. Um, and, and I think it, from that perspective, it definitely delivered. I'll apologise in advance for some of the sound effects I've got going on. I'm uh, I'm in Indy, and anyone who's been to Indy will recognise the the sound of the train horns that go off uh, at really unreasonable hours of the morning, usually. But uh, at this time, not so not so unreasonable as part of my little beatnik road trip across the the Midwest here. But anyway, let's get back to Iowa. I wanted to start with Joseph Newgarden because uh, I guess the weekend started and ended with him as the as the biggest story for for very different reasons. The the first race. He and uh, well, once he was into the lead, it was very clear that he had the best car and that he wasn't in uh, any sort of uh, trouble for the win. Really, the only sort of question mark came late in the race when Pato Award closed in, you know, a little bit. But still, 
Joseph and, and Pato managed to, to clear Will Power by 20 seconds by the end of the race. And, you know, I've seen some people saying, you know, it's a short lap and uh, things like that. But to, to be lapping up to the, you know, the top eight or, or whatever is, you know, doesn't matter how long the lap is, that is, you know, an incredible pace to set. And then, and then race two, obviously basically repeated that performance took him a little bit longer to get into the lead and he looked a little bit more under pressure from from willpower in 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 the early stages and then from from pato award just breaking into the second half of the race and then um we we haven't heard from penske exactly what happened yet whether we know something's broken on the car or, or not but then crashed it at turn four and uh yeah just to update everyone i'm sure uh, people you know followed this story over the course of the weekend joseph was sent to the infield care centre and and cleared after the crash, but then had a fall and uh, had a, a head abrasion and went back to, um, he was airlifted hospital, which, you know, probably made it look maybe a little bit more dramatic than it was or, or was a bit of a worry. Um, but a lot of that was down to the fact that the hospital was so far away from the track and that there was a lot of, a lot of traffic with the, uh, the Blake Shelton concert, the race and, and all of that sort of breaking away from, from Iowa afterwards. So he was taken to hospital and then he was released. Um, so when you're listening to this, this podcast, um, Joseph has been released the, from the, from hospital and is either in Nashville or in Indy, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, he's being assessed on Thursday ahead of the, the weekend's action with Santino Ferrucci on standby. So that's where we're up to at the moment as we record the pod. Joe, I wanted to ask you, a question that I asked Scott McLaughlin, which fascinates me to be honest, because this was my first time visiting Iowa and obviously I've watched the races on TV before and it's very clear that if you can look after your tyres and you've got a huge advantage when it comes to, well, any time really in the stint, but especially um, if you can make less of a compromise at the start of the stint and keep your pace up and still have tyre life left at the end of the stint, then that's the secret to Iowa. But what I can't understand is that Will Power and Scott McLaughlin have access to, to Joseph data, Joseph's data. And yet every year we come back to Iowa and, you know, he says it's not a beat down anymore and that it's a much more, you know, difficult proposition for him. Um, but, but how many tracks do we go to in the IndyCar series where there's a driver that is strong as Joseph Newgarden is compared to everybody else at Iowa? And why can his teammates not close that gap more based on, you know, having a weekend of data and, and access to what he can do? You know, what makes him so special at this place, do you think? You've been his teammate before. I think it's a couple of things that end up because of the nature of the track compounding into a really distinct advantage over the course of the race. I I don't think that Joseph has, it's not like he's got a line choice or like a really particular way of driving the car that enables him to have better tire life. And And I don't think frankly that his, if you just put it apples to apples, like his pace at the end of stints to me was not was not the thing that, you know, helped him beat the rest of the guys. It's, I think what stood out to me watching these races even more so than, than watching in the past is that he's, he's really at no point locked into one line or another around the track, you know, line choice being high line, low line, second, first lane, second lane. So Will, it seemed to me, started to like favor running in the high line. And so then when you're kind when you get a little bit, when you start to favor and you and a lot of times you start to favor one line or another because the car is actually just working better in one lane or another. I mean, I I was 
I tended to favor running in the high line when I raced at Iowa, in part just because I knew that over the course of a long stint, as long as I keep my pace up, I would end up with better tire life by the end of the stint by running a slightly wider, basically by just not putting quite as much steering in the car through the center of the corner where it's at max load. So when you're running the high line, you can basically just reduce the steering angle and that that's going to work the right front tire or the right rear tire, depending on what your balance is like a little bit less over the course of the stint. And to me watching this race, one of the little things that stood out to me watching Joseph get through traffic as compared to watching the other guys get through traffic is he just was a little bit more backed up going into the corner. Like he was giving guys a little bit more room, not driving right up on them into the corner in a, in a scenario where if you do that, you're committing early to one lane or another, basically. And you're just inevitably, it might not even be 50% of the time or something. You might guess that right seven out of 10 times, but then the other three out of 10 it's costing you another lap of getting stuck behind that guy because then you're slow through three and four. You've you've sort of guessed early that the guy in front of you, the last time you went through three and four, they ran the high line. So you're thinking, okay, I'm going to run low because they're going to run high and I'm going to blow by him in the middle of the corner. If that guy then runs low, then you're stuck in that corner and then you don't get the runoff. So you don't get the run through one and two and then you're like starting this whole process all over again. So you lose a lot of momentum in this exchange. And it looks like And, and me- I guess you're also, sorry, you're also uh, committing to putting your, you're putting the corner in the other driver's hands as well. Because if that driver has a moment or moves up the track, then you're, if you've committed early, then you're kind of, you're in their hands, aren't you? You know, you're right. hoping that they're going to have a good corner. But if they don't, then you're going to have to react to that. And so it's interesting that you, you kind of have this looking at from the outside and you see guys getting through traffic better than another car. And that appears to be like an aggressiveness thing or like an aggression, the, the, the effect of being more aggressive in terms of your, of your decision making. And, and I actually think that it's, it's actually the effect of being a little bit less in a hurry. So it's not, it's just a different dynamic. Like it has nothing to do with your aggression one way or the other. It might be that Joseph was also being more aggressive getting through traffic, but for him, what that, how that was kind of manifesting itself was allowing to allowing himself to kind of see what the car in front of him was going to do. And then at that point, like leaving that, leaving the door open to, to not basically not getting screwed by that. And then, and then being able to select which line was going to be open to him to get clean air. And just, I think just having some trust that then at that point you can trust the fact that you're just in a better car and you know, you're, you're the same distance through a stint. Like they were never way off strategy in terms of being, really short or really long relative to anybody in particular in terms of tire life. Uh, This is, it's just one of those situations, particularly being a leader, not being in a hurry, not being in a rush to get in the, get by, get by the car in front of you, being open to running on either line and not really being predisposed to one or the other necessarily. 
I think those were sort of the keys to Joseph basically just because when it comes down to it, you have to be able to run the lap time. There's only so much you can do if you're running the lap time, if there's no other cars around to maintain the, to, to deal with your tire dag. And so I think, but one thing that will definitely increase your tire dag is just getting in a jam, basically. Like if you're, if you're, I, I would, I guess I would sort of put forth the argument here that just miscalculating where the car is going to run in front of you and then being stuck running on the wrong line through dirty air through a corner, that's affecting your tire deg more than being on one lane or the other if it's the right lane. And so I think among the leaders, among the guys that were running up front that were kind of in this conversation, that to me was how Joseph was able to just over the course of a stint or the course of kind of like these 10 or 20 lap chunks go from somebody's sort of within a second or two to, Oh, now suddenly I'm looking at the ticker and he's like six, six seconds up the road. And, and, and now he's just running the same lap time. Like there's no, there's been no like really obvious, like, Oh, he's just way faster or he's crushing the high line when nobody else can or something like that. I think it was just this kind of, openness to lane choice, not making, not, not forcing the issue and allowing, allowing the race to kind of come to him by, by having a bit of just that, I don't know, like inner intelligence, like allowing your, allowing yourself to just react to what you're seeing and trusting that you're going to make the right choice as opposed to jamming it in every time. That's really interesting. I think it, it leads us on nicely to, to Pato Award do as the, the beneficiary of, of Joseph crashing out and was able to to keep willpower at, at bay there. And I, I don't want to simplify what you just said or, or put, it, put it down to one thing because it was obviously multiple aspects of what you were saying there, but it sounded like patience was a big, you know, underlying factor of that when it comes to, to racing in traffic. And I, I still feel like there's a school of thought out there that, that Pato Award is this super aggressive driver who's hard on his tires, hard on his equipment, um, you know, has a bit of a reputation for being a bit all out aggression kind of thing. And I think if you look at his overall record now, his, his stats are absolutely staggering. And to come into a weekend like this, where, you know, we talked about tire deg is, is such an important thing, looking after your tires, being patient in traffic, knowing when to make your moves and when to back out, when to just read what's going on and, and, and just kind of, I guess, just adapt to, to everything around you. That, that doesn't sound like the, the school of thought that I've heard um, from, from Pato Award in the past. And I, I think we've done, I think you and I, JR, and we've had him on the pod, Pato talking about this, have done quite a good job of kind of debunking this myth that, that Pato is this sort of over-aggressive, you know, car-breaking kind of dude when he's obviously not. And I think, you know, I always a, a perfect example of that because to, to finish first and second over the two races, you need a lot of patience and a lot of uh, ability to look after the tyres and take care of your equipment and stuff like that. What what do you make of his chances now just moving forward? He's going to have to outscore Marcus Ericsson by about seven points per race now if he's going to have any chance of, of winning the championship, which is a, a steep hill to climb. But I know you kind of usually have a good... Uh, I don't want to say you usually have a cutoff point, but you kind of usually have an idea of where you think people need to be when, when we're coming down to this. And, and with five races to go, what, what are you kind of anticipating here? I think he's still very much in the mix. Uh, you know, we talked about this, I think, after after the previous round, but this is exactly the kind of weekend that he needed to have. But it doesn't. it's not a huge surprise that 
he was able to do this over the course of this weekend. Just to touch on the point that you made about his driving style and, and kind of how that's how we look at that. It's one thing, I think, to just be a driver that is hyper aggressive and you're sawing at the wheel and 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 this kind of stuff because that's just how you drive. It's another thing when to in order to go fast in the car that you're driving, that's just what re- that's what's required to keep it on the straight and narrow. I mean, I think there's a lot of times that that it's it would be easy to look at Pato's not not in not looking at this past weekend, but just in the past, like last year in particular. There are times that you see his onboards and you're just like, oh man, he's just driving like a wild person. It's kind of like, no, well, maybe the car is just super loose, and so he's just trying not to crash basically while he's still going fast. And that's like, look at Scott Dixon's onboards at Barber over the last ten years. Like he's turning the wrong direction for most of the track, <laughs> but still manages to stick it on the podium and and go as long as anybody else on on fuel and tires. So I think these are just two slightly different things. I mean, some of the things that I've heard over the last two years about the setups that they run at McLaren and 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 all this kind of stuff are just like, well, yeah, I mean, we should actually be patting patting Pato on the back uh, <laughs> for, for like just tolerating and being able to drive. I mean, there's a little bit of, it's a little bit of the same types of things that you used to hear about like Greg Moore, you know, that he was absurdly good on ovals, but basically, I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy Vassar will tell you a story at the old homestead of getting passed by Greg. Greg Moore, I think was like unlapping himself or something. Jimmy was leading the race and Greg Moore goes flying by him, unlapping himself. And he's just like crossed up and sideways for the entire track on like a, you know, 200 plus mile an hour oval. And Jimmy was just like, there's just no way this guy is going to finish the race. And he unlapped himself, caught back up to Jimmy, like basically caught a lap back and, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't actually remember what the outcome was, whether he won or not, but it was just kind of one of these things like that's, that's sort of what we're getting from Pato. We've seen it at the 500 a couple of times now. Um, we saw it at Texas last year in particular, I thought. And, and now in the short ovals, it's kind of the same thing that it's, there's, there's a difference between purposefully driving the car in a certain way and being able to drive a car that is set up a certain way and it just looking like that as a result. And so I think, I think what we've learned is Pato's situation here is the latter. And, uh, and when it does, when the car is hooked up enough, which it seems that Aero McLaren has just made a step in hooking it up enough that he can get through a stint and it's, you know, he's not, you know, suffering massive tire deg either through qualifying or over the course of a race that this is what we can sort of expect. I mean, his, his track record at this point is now long enough to, to be, you know, statistically significant in terms of that sample. So I I was super impressed with, with Pato over the course of the weekend. Whenever I hear Taylor Kyle over the radio, it, to me, he just sounds like the perfect voice of reason and like, you know, calmness to have in, in Pato's ears. So I feel like that's, that's a combination that they cannot mess with if they want to continue to have success together. And, and, and as we've seen, I mean, if, if you just take, obviously Pato, uh, was aided by the double points finish at, at Indy, 
but then had two DNFs that are not his fault. If you if you just kind of balance those things out, he's right in the thick of all of this. And to me, there's there's not really any particular reason that I, I can't, I, I don't see any, because they've made a step from last year in terms of just this kind of tire deg situation, they've had much fewer instances this year of just being kind of inexplicably off pace because the car is too hard to drive or whatever. Um, I think they could potentially show up at any of these rounds that are upcoming and be as fast as anybody. And that puts him right in the mix. I mean, when you really think about it, if you take away the DNFs or whatever, if you just, if you kind of write those off as not having anything to do with team performance or whatever else, they've been as consistent as anybody has been in terms of outright pace and how well they've converted qualifying to race. So like I don't they're definitely he's definitely not out of the picture at this point for sure I agree on Taylor Kyle I can't imagine him being a I could just can't imagine him being a linebacker we're gonna have to go back on YouTube and see if we can find some videos of this because there's just doesn't (laughs) appear to be an ounce of aggression in his body I I can't really see that happening but anyway yeah good take on on Pato I think um I think you only need to look at Felix Rose and Chris performances over the past two years to see the development they made with that car in terms of you know, securing that rear end and, and making it easier to drive because, uh, you know, his performances this year have, have reflected that perfectly. Just moving on a little bit and, and keeping with the aggression theme, I'm sure you're keen to fanboy a bit on Jimmy Johnson after this weekend, um, as as I think everyone was. You know, it's so difficult sometimes to to watch on the road and street courses and just see this, you know, this seven-time champion struggling so much. And, you know, I, I spoke to him, you know, um, before Toronto and it was... It was really interesting to hear him talking about, you know, the the that not he's not able to shortcut this learning process, and you know, it's it's just a shame that he's doing his learning in a, a top, you know, elite level championship. But when the opportunities present himself, you know, he looks every bit that seven time champion, and we saw that this weekend. I think you know the the aggression point. Obviously, he was burning through his tyres at times, but some of the overtakes he was able to pull off and some of the lines that he was finding over the two races were, were absolutely incredible. A bit of a fresh air, that wasn't it, JR? Fresh air moment. Yeah, for sure. And I think that Jimmy, it, this is where Jimmy's experience comes into play and you can just, you can see it. I mean, it was the same thing at Texas that he's used to, you know, in a stock car, you're you're used to just looking around for grip and that's just a part of the, part of the process of going through a race and it doesn't matter whether it's qualifying or practice or the race or whatever, you're just always searching basically, you know, you're always looking for somewhere on the track. The car works a little bit different. And so there's a, there's an element of like creativity, I think that's built into that. Um, that's totally different than finding pace on a rotor street circuit. Like finding pace on a rotor street circuit is just you, there's one, there's sort of one, one line, one lane, you know, it's, it's a little bit less like you're not going to, you're not going to sudden, you're not going to like, Oh, I'll just, I'll break, you know, I'll turn in 20 feet later and that'll somehow be better. Like it doesn't, doesn't work like that, you know? And so it's much more having to be super in tune with how the car does what it does and being able to extract that performance out of it. Whereas on the, on an oval like this, particularly once you get into the race, you're, you're constantly adapting it's more like driving in the rain. You know, it'd be interesting, you know, in, in, in sort of different circumstances, 
you know, I would wonder if Jimmy would be better if he was, if he it was at the point yet that he was like really comfortable with the way the car worked or like on a track that maybe it wasn't quite so high variability, what, his, what he'd be like in the wet, just because I think that a, an oval, like an oval race like this is, I, in my experience, has always been a bit more of that type of mindset. Like you're always kind of just assessing what the cars in front of you are doing, looking at where they're running you know, leaning on your car in some different ways. You've got a lot of laps, a lot of corners. You can all, you can kind of be playing with little aspects of what you're doing every corner, every lap, trying to find something new, somewhere different to run. Can you run over the seams or not? Can you, and you, you kind of have a chance to like try things without being overly committed and then build up your commitment level in different places. And I think that Jimmy just, this is where his wealth of experience kicking everyone's ass in NASCAR for years, some of it was this, being able to drive cars that were a little loose and just being able to find the places on the track where they work. And between he and Chad Knauss, like they would crush people when they figured that out. And so this was reminiscent of that for me. And it made sense to me that he was good here because and, and he, you know, they, they talked about it on the, on the broadcast. Was he doing some things that even, even the most kind of creative or experienced IndyCar guys wouldn't have done? Yeah. Just because the, the risk reward factor, you just, you've been through it enough. You've been stuck in the gray and ended up in the wall. Everybody's done it at some point. You just kind of know that that's not worth screwing around with. Um, but for Jimmy, you know, he's, he's got two races to kind of, you know, get himself to the point that he's really happy with how he's performed. He's willing to take some of those risks. I think if you just asked him, I'm sure he's just willing to take those risks more than the championship contenders are. And, and for him, it's just about, can I, can I like get out here and find a way of running around this place, even if it's higher risk than the rest of the guys that for me is fun. Like I feel like this is really clicked and, and I can kind of have that competitive experience. And so I think in essence, I think that looking at his, looking at his race or his races, I think that's more or less what went down here was he was a little bit more willing to kind of put the car in some places that, other guys wouldn't and he managed to discover some things basically by doing that that other guys even once they saw jimmy doing it were sort of unwilling to do because they still just looked too sketchy basically to to rely on and so that ended up, and and jimmy held on to it for the i mean he he did get up in the gray badly once um but then he just kind of stuck with it and kept doing his thing and and obviously had confidence and um, I thought that was really cool to see. It did surprise me a little bit. Like, it, it surprised me it didn't. It surprised me a little bit that it did not surprise me, I guess I would say, that Jip Canassi Racing didn't have some kind of team orders situation in place between him and Marcus. Like The fact that that was the case did not surprise me. It surprised me a little bit, frankly, that Jimmy just raced him as hard as he did knowing that like just among drivers on the same team, that was the part of it that surprised me a little bit, but um, you know, he got himself a top five and, and I think that after everything that he's gone through here and how well he performed over the course of this weekend, that was well-deserved. Yeah. Scott Dixon was one of those people who said maybe he needs to start 
moving around the track a little bit more in a, in a bid to to kind of unlock what what Jimmy had a, a lot of comparisons for me to to Roman Grosjean's uh, gateway performance last year where you know he was up and down yeah. and moving around making some big overtakes and stuff just because he didn't have the knowledge that that the other guys had and you know sometimes that's a benefit sometimes that's a a loss and and in this case you know Jimmy was able to to extract some you know, some strong pace out of it. I think my favourite, uh, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but my favourite Jimmy uh, quote from the weekend was basically, thank goodness there's no braking zones on this track. <laughs> 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 which, I, which I really, 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 really enjoyed. Um, because there's, there's, with Jimmy, he's not this, you know, this egocentric champion who, you know, he may have won seven championships, but he's still very self-aware. And uh, I think anyone who's ever watched an interview with him will, will realise that. But just the... <laughs> You know the the ability to still have a, have fun about you know what he's doing, and I think that's the underlying factor is that it's the it's the media that constantly kind of interpret what's going on with Jimmy and and you know define it um, by its own means. But Jimmy himself is, you know, he's having a ball, and the way he sees it is he's driving you know some of the best cars in the world, and um, he's got some of the best teammates in the world, and he, he's just enjoying what he's doing. And you know what is wrong with that? You know he's he's safe out there. He's not he's not dangerously slow or anything like that, and he's getting better and better every week. So, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of positives to take, I think from, from that weekend, I wanted to raise his teammate, JR Marcus Ericsson, who probably would have lost the championship lead had Joseph Newgarden. Well, he would have lost the championship lead if Joseph Newgarden had won the race at the weekend, but still I kind of wanted to flag this up because I feel like it always feels like there's a school of people trying to criticize Marcus, including us, I suppose at one point, um, but the, I guess it feels like this is maybe the first opportunity in a while for people to really, you know, find a negative because of, of how this weekend's gone to a certain extent. But I, I, I want to flip that over because I, I kind of think, um, I know the qualifying performances weren't fantastic, but Marcus, you know, delivered an, an eighth and a sixth at a track where, you know, Gass, Ganassi knew they weren't going to be on Penske's level and that it wasn't going to be likely a fantastic weekend for them and Marcus was every bit as quick as any of his Ganassi teammates over the weekend and had the stints worked out differently and just getting to the end of the races worked out differently there's every chance he might have been the top Ganassi finisher in, in either of the races so yeah I think in the context of we want to flag that that Will Power basically said that the Marcus is the best racer in the series at the moment in in a press conference on Saturday and I should add for context, that was totally unprompted. No, no one asked him. You know, who do you think is the best racer in the series right now? He was talking about the championship and um, obviously brought up Marcus in in relation to that championship and said that he believes he's the best racer at the moment. Joseph Newgarden was a bit um, a bit colder on that. Kind of said that he, he believes that Marcus is kind of maybe like one level under Alex Pelo still in terms of you know in terms of that being asked that question. But Scott Dixon was very keen to to point out the. Marcus goes into a you know quite an extensive level of detail with his his engineer Brad Goldberg and you know that's something we talked about on the Indy 500 pod and something that you know they obviously benefited from from there but in just in terms of the racecraft you know I think I'd agree that I've seen a big improvement from Marcus whether he's the best racer in the series is a difficult thing to say when we've got so many great racers but you know how, how do you assess this claim from Will Power JR is, is it something you agree with is, is there anything you want to add to it I think that it's fair basically that I mean, a lot of what we've talked about is one of the strengths that you that you see statistically, but you can also pick it out just watching these races is Marcus's ability to convert, you know, like a mid-pack qualifying performance into a 
top five or a top 10. And that's been the strength of his championship run thus far uh, throughout. He's, I think the other thing that we're sort of seeing here is that that's last year, last year saying that felt like it was in part kind of a backhanded knock on his qualifying performances. Whereas this year, his qualifying has been sort of of the average of Scott Dixon and Alex Pillow, which are two of the guys that we rate just on kind of outright pace and ability as highly as we rate anybody in this championship. And so to me, you have to sort of factor that in that maybe, maybe we're not seeing, you know, we're not seeing Marcus just sticking it on the, on the, in the first two rows that frequently. And so it sort of makes you question whether some of his, you know, his, his racing or where he ends up in these races is somehow luck or whatever. And it's just like, no, well, he's, He's getting he's getting a lot out of the car. The field is stacked. Ganassi altogether has not been as strong as Penske in in qualifying form over the course of the year outside of the 500. I mean, if you think about it, just comparing the two organizations to each other, I guess I had a couple of thoughts that that were crossing through my mind while you were while you were introducing this this sort of general topic, which is one, you have to be impressed with Ganassi for how uh, you know, uh, un, uninspiring their qualifying performance was for both of these races that they ended up with three cars in the top six or whatever by the end of the second race, like just the ability for this organization, you have to, you have to have a degree of appreciation and respect just for the team to be able to every weekend. It seems like even if they start out and they're kind of nowhere in the first practice session, they are the one team that are, is always there by the end of the race. And it's always there with more than one car. It's not split up. It's not like Scott Dixon is way ahead of the other two guys or, or Marcus is way ahead of the other two guys or whatever. Um, they all end up making a pretty good, a pretty good jump. So you can just tell that, despite the tumultuous nature of what's gone on with this team for various reasons now over the course of the year, I guess some of it's still unfolding with Alex and we'll get to that in a minute, but they, they, they are working. It seems like they've created something where when they find gains, the whole team still finds gains and you see that across the different entries. And that to me is, it is pretty impressive to see that because we're, you're seeing it a little bit more with Penske I, this year as compared to last year. Maybe some of that is McLaughlin just being more in the mix of being a part of that as opposed to just uh, being a little bit you know, independent of what the other two cars were doing, which is kind of how it seemed certainly in this like the second half of last year. Um, but just the strength of the team at Ganassi is, is clearly quite significant. And, and just looking at you're kind of talking about Marcus's performance and and the and Ganassi knowing that they were coming to Iowa not being at the level of Penske. Penske had tested here. Well, I, I guess Ganassi had tested here too. They just knew by the end of the test that the Penske cars were really good and the Ganassi the Ganassi guys were going to need to, you know, put some work in. Um that compare that to the 500 as kind of the other, you know, double point situation. Okay, Ganassi went there and dominated like we sort of saw Penske show up here and be dominant. But Penske was like nowhere at Indy, basically, when it was all said and done. And by the end of the second race here, you've got a bunch of Ganassi cars that are right there on the heels of 
of the Penske guys. So I just think in terms of what the organizations are doing here, that's you you take Ganassi's situation in that trade-off. And uh, I think that 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 leads us to knowing that we'll still have a pretty intense battle through the end of the season and that Marcus is not, it's not like the field is catching up to Marcus Erickson. Like he's still able to rip off these kinds of performances, even when they're somewhere that they know they're at a disadvantage. Um, And I, you know, in terms of Will's assessment of the whole thing, I think you have to start treating this this year. We've seen Marcus do this, without the help of weird strategy, without the help of it's, he's sort of quietly finishing where he's finishing still. But I think maybe just because we're paying more attention to it, not because he's the championship leader, but because it's, he's done it consistently enough. It just has to be something that you pay attention to. And it's it again, a little bit like Pato and, and Taylor, that kind of combination and that duo, like, yeah, that I just think that the eight crew on this team, they've they've all together have they're operating within an environment that's very capable of approaching a lot of different situations and extracting a lot of performance out of them, whether that's just getting through a stint, getting through a race, maximizing in and out and pit in situations and, and all this kind of stuff. There's, it just seems like they're, they're able to tie all of the aspects of performance over the course of a race together as well or better than not only just other teams, but, but even the other entries on their own team over the course of the season. And that's, you know, that I think is, is both reflective of the team's performance and Marcus's all tied together in terms of what the eight teams bring into the table. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I guess there is there is one thing that I wanted to just kind of, this is jumping back sort of to a point at the beginning of the pod about Joseph and sort of what was going on here, but I want to just mention it before we, before we move too far away from it. Um, I think there's been a little bit of some, some of what's been going on with him post race in the aftermath of the second race. I think there's just having been through a lot of these procedures before, I think it's worth just clarifying for, for listeners a little bit of like kind of what's going on here and what's normal versus what's abnormal and, and, and how this all works. So the, the IndyCar series, this just this year, I did it for the first time this year um, at at Texas, 
they've implemented a new concussion protocol that is in addition to the impact test and and kind of the baseline concussion testing that a lot of sports do. Um, so they've implemented something new that it was that weekend at Texas that Jack Harvey, you know, didn't pass it basically. And and I would, uh, frankly, I would say that the this new concussion protocol that they run us through basically any time that any time that you can't drive the car back into the pit lane, they run you through this concussion protocol. So it's much more intensive than it used to be. Um, and it's actually a pretty simple test, but when you go through it, like when I went through it at Texas, I was like, this would be really hard to do even if I was just really pissed off. Like, you know, this would be like a, you know, a situation you'd have to really calm your nerves and be ready to do this, let alone actually be suffering concussion life like symptoms. So it's definitely not a joke from that perspective in terms of what the what the series has brought forth to make sure that when they clear guys, they are genuinely cleared. So Joseph by all accounts, must have passed that concussion protocol because they cleared him after the incident itself. Why would they have had, I think a question that's lingering here is why would they have him come back and have to retest on Thursday? A second part of the sort of concussion, this revised concussion protocol is that when they see an impact that is over a certain number of Gs, that they get from our earpiece accelerometers, they're just going to retest you anyway, just to make sure, basically. So that's just, and and that number is not indicative of, it's not like they have a, a G-force rating that they think like, if, you're, if you have a, a hit that's this many Gs, you are super, like this is a high likelihood that you suffer concussion-like symptoms or whatever. They just kind of have an arbitrary point that they say if it's, and I I don't know what it is, I'm making this up, but let's just say it's 50 G's or something that they're just going to have you come back and test. So, so those aspects of this thing were in place and Dr. Billows did, did describe this, but it was kind of in the middle of him talking about it, responding to a bunch of different questions and, and different things. Um, that I guess I, I wanted to just point out that like he was going to be retested this Thursday one way or the other, despite whatever happened in between. This is just, this is just conjecture on my part that in terms of whether, I guess it's still a little bit unclear whether he had a, had a moment of sort of faintness and that's what, you know, so he fell down or, you know, whatever that in these situations, like it's the second race of a long weekend. It was hot as hell the day before. So dehydration certainly is, is sort of a factor at least in terms of what's going on at, at this point. Um, you sensed the emotion that Joseph had after, after the accident, you know, you can tell that for these guys, this is like, these are kind of make or break situations in terms of the thing that they're here to do. And, and, and I can definitely speak to having been in these situations where everything's going great and then suddenly it's not. And just the shock of that is something that really catches you off guard. Um, you are heavily invested in these situations and frankly, there's a lot of stress that is in play within these teams and that we, you know, and I would just say, I don't, I don't, so I don't know any of this. I've not talked to Joseph about it. Uh, This is, this is just strictly 
and this isn't even like any particular comment about him versus versus anybody else. But um, I, I found myself just kind of thinking like as a driver in this situation, um, he is carrying a lot of weight of this team and this situation, this organization as the clear, it, you know, despite what Will Power has been doing, and he's very much still in the championship mix. Joseph is trying to lead this team, this organization back to the promised land. Like he's been the guy to be doing this. And this seemed like the situation where it's going to turn around. So I guess I just put that out there to say that there's, I don't really, I, I don't know what happened any more than anybody else knows what happened, but there are a lot of things that can kind of come together here beyond a physical ailment of some kind that could create for, you know, this, this type of situation. So I guess I, just from a driver's perspective and also knowing, knowing what some of the kind of regulations and rules are in these scenarios, I thought I would just throw that out there to clear a little bit of that up. Yeah, it's good to do that. And I think important to add that, you know, you mentioned you doing the test at Texas. So IndyCar will keep a record of every driver's test results and then do match that against the test that you do after your crash, which is how they sort of, uh, it's it's not, obviously it's not, in, in these scenarios, there's no sort of proof of, of kind of uh, what's going on is there, but you can only, all you can do is test to work out whether someone needs to be tested again and to be, you know, watched carefully and that kind of thing. So the IndyCar will continue to do this. They'll do it next year before the season starts. Um, they'll continue to test drivers. Um, I think it's if it's not every year, it's every two years. But they'll they'll keep a record of all these test results, so they've got something to to base it off. So that if a driver does come in after a, a big crash where they've measured the G and it is over, you, you know, fifty was a number you used, then they can immediately put them through that test, and they'll have the results of a driver doing that, not under stress and not in any kind of you know duress or any difficult situation. So that's a, a really important thing to to point out, and you know something something that IndyCar's taken really seriously, especially with some of the changes that you mentioned. Um, you know, I know the they have a protocol in place where if a driver does miss races due to to being concussed or, or something like that, then they'll arrange simulator time and they'll evaluate them and they'll have their the driver's engineer in the sim with them so that the engineer has, you know, can evaluate their feedback and see if it's the same as normal, um, which is obviously a test that no kind of doctor can do. That's a you know, that's more of a feeling test and again, we're talking about, you know, not you're not able to necessarily prove what's happening. It's it's a I guess it's tools that all of the, you know, the the doctors are using to evaluate whether the driver should be in the car or not, and that's that's good to know that there's so many different protocol in place. And that just to follow to follow on with that as a little bit of what they what they do. So just because because we're talking about it here, so they do the impact test, which is which you rebaseline every two years, and that you'd go through. So this is a test that impact like uh, I don't know, it's a acronym, like it stands for something that the they do this for IMSA. They do it for IndyCar. Uh, they use this test in a lot of like stick and ball sports. So it's, this is the baseline concussion protocol testing that we've done for forever. So I've, I've done the impact test like, you know, 10 times now or whatever at your annual physical. And it's, it's similar to like a logic or reasoning test. So you have to, you have to like 
be able to remember and kind of regurgitate a bunch of different phrases, designs, you know, it's, it's quick thinking, it's memory, it's a bunch of things kind of all wrapped into one. If you've ever, this kind of sounds random, but if you've ever done like Lumosity or any of these like brain training, like games on your phone or something, it's a lot of that type of stuff. And so like Jack said, they you establish a baseline for what you, you know, how you do this when you're lucid and clear and whatever. And then you take the test again to, to test against your baseline. They've a few years ago, they started adding this. It's like a, it's almost like a virtual reality headset basically, which is not strictly a part of the concussion protocol. Like they, they can't, because it's still in development, they can't technically use it to define to use it as a baseline test, but it's something that they retest the drivers with every couple of years. And it's interestingly something that because it's tracking your eye movement, doing a bunch of different things that um, almost immediately when they're done with it, they can tell you whether or not, like they can tell you in much greater, Trammel can tell you in much greater detail, like, yes, you, it, it basically tracks like whether just the first time you do it, they could tell you whether you've had a concussion at some point or not like that it it does sort of factor in your change over time with a completely different set of criteria for how your brain through your eye movement is monitoring different things and reacting to different things one direction versus another left side right side uh, all this kind of different stuff this year they've added in an additional component to this which is something that they can basically do on an iPad immediately after you get out of the car so it doesn't require any of the equipment doesn't require like you know, a computer to be working properly for some reason or another. Um, that is, is frankly, like I mentioned before, like the most simple of all of the tests, but I actually think probably the hardest, like if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to outsmart the test, like because it's so simple, it'd be like impossible to outsmart it basically. So uh, there are a lot of things that that the IndyCar safety team and the IndyCar medical staff are doing. And uh, I th- I'm sure they've thrown all of this stuff at Joseph to make sure that he's ready to roll for the next race. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Moving on. Jack, what is the story? What is the latest on the future of the 10 car because as we as we start thinking about uh you know whether or not your brain's working properly it's something that i'm wondering about the people that are involved in in this whole scenario here like what what is actually going on here what's 
what's like what what do we know now that we didn't know last weekend if anything well in a world of social media obviously we want answers to everything immediately after something happens don't we whereas in this situation obviously it's been extremely complicated and, and things have it's kind of trickle down mentality right there's, there's a lot going on and a lot of a lot of moving parts so i think the the kind of shift or maybe the development that I've kind of come to through, you know, sources in the paddock and, and speaking to to people is that it seems like the that Alex won't be continuing in the ten car in any capacity next year, which is not something the team has confirmed officially. Um, that's just something that we're kind of um, evaluating from from paddock sources and stuff at the minute. But it definitely seems like if it wasn't there before, there's been a significant shift in the mentality that even if this scenario is you know, reconciled in some way, shape or form that it is extremely unlikely that Alex will be, Alex Pillow will be back in the, in the 10 car next year, which then obviously immediately raises the question of what Ganassi can do. Uh, the, the, the problem they have is obviously it's so late in, in silly season in terms of all of the big teams have got their, their drivers, you know, stitched up now. So it's a, it's a difficult scenario for them. The, I guess the, the prevailing kind of conversation over the weekend was, that they've got, you know, two very good drivers on their books already that could slot in there and, and do a good job for a season like Sebastian Bourdais and, and Ryan hunter I think my personal view is that it was the right time for, for Ryan hunter to to kind of, you know, call his IndyCar career quits there and, and move on to different things. I think, you know, his performances in, in that last season, although he and James Hinchcliffe obviously both struggled and I'm sure there was stuff going on there that meant he wasn't able to, you know, unlock his ultimate level of performance. I still feel like Sebastian Bourdais would be the better choice there in in my opinion, just based on what he's done in the past few years uh, in IndyCar and, and the, the the fact that he hasn't had a, you know, a major opportunity like uh, a Ganassi car for, for a long, long time. And it would be just great to see what he could, what he could do with that. And if you're going to slot anyone in for a season, you know, I think Sebastian's at a point in his career where he'll drive anything and, and, and kind of, he, well, he's just like that anyway, isn't he? He's just the kind of guy who would just get in and drive something, drive the wheels off it. But he's also the kind of guy who, you know, I think I used the example when I was writing about this on the website. He, he's the kind of guy who would take a gazebo down and, you know, he's the kind of guy who would tidy up after himself and he would endear himself to the crew, basically. And if you're going to put someone in the car for a year, then that's the kind of guy you want hanging around the team, right? So that's a, that's a big deal. You've got points to make there, JR. Yeah, I just want to I want to add on to this. Sebastian gets like a bad rap for being French. I don't know. Like I don't I don't know I don't know exactly what he gets a bad rap for. He gets a bad rap for like, you know, maybe being he sa- he sounds like he's kind of complaining and you know, he doesn't seem like the most upbeat guy and and some of those things are true. Like he's not a super upbeat guy like when things are not going great. Even when things are going great, he's kind of like on to the next thing. But I guess the thing that the thing that I I I really like Sebastian Bourdais just as as a driver. Uh, I I got a chance last year at the 500 at least to be sort of a teammate. Um, I've been around the guy since you know since I was racing Atlantics and NF2000 before that under Champ Car when he was at Newman Haas just kicking everyone's ass. And I think the thing that as I've gotten to know him even better over the years as as a fellow as like more of a peer I guess is he is absolutely just a super genuine guy. And I guess as a, as a race car driver, what I really respect about him is he's kind of of this, maybe a bit like Scott Dixon, but, but even still in a different way that Sebastian comes from this era of 
like pre-social media, pre any of this stuff where if you wanted to be a top flight, like a first class race car driver, you had to really earn it on the track. Like you had to earn it in the things that you do as a professional race car driver, not any of the things that extend beyond that to please your sponsors, to do any of the rest of the stuff. And in some ways, somehow that has created a bit of like, like he's not as friendly. He's not as like easy to deal with probably if you're in the media, like he's not, he kind of doesn't have a lot of time for the things that don't end up equaling results on track. But like as a driver, that's actually what I love about the guy is he's so committed to those things and he cares so deeply about that. And it's like, he's just a racer like through and through, like he'll, he be, he'll be one of these guys that in the, in the right car on a good day, he'll just, he'll still go stomp everybody like as a, you know, in his late forties or something like there's still some of the, you know, uh, I, like even some of the guys in the sports car paddock, like, uh, you know, Roman Dumas and and guys like this, like they just, they keep showing up and keep sticking cars on poles and they keep beating the young guys and they keep hanging it out in qualifying, you know, when it, when it's like when the checks are getting written, these guys like are totally up to the task every time. And, uh, and so I, I would a hundred percent agree that whether it's, you could make a case, I'm sure for there being some young guys that would benefit hugely and not be bad calls uh for this situation right but if you're going to be kind of dipping into the of the real genuine drivers that are available right now that aren't under contract for something um you know i i'm i totally agree that sebastian would be he would be a guy that will get in this car add to the team immediately be a team player and I think we'll probably end up surprising some people in terms of just how much pace he's still got. He's always been fantastic with me in terms of, you know, dealing with, um, you know, whether I want to write a story or just speak to him about something. He's always been, you know, absolutely fantastic. Nothing but good things to say about Sebastian in terms of, you know, how he operates. You you mentioned there some of the the kind of younger options. So let's get into those. Um, uh, It kind of came out over the weekend or, became clear maybe to me that Callum Eilat was someone who was extremely high on Ganassi's list for, for next season. Um, unfortunately, uh, I think it's going to be announced very soon. Unfor- I shouldn't say unfortunately, because I'm totally unbiased in this situation. I, I guess I'm looking at this from Callum's opportunity to race a Ganassi car, which would be a big deal. Unfortunately, uh, it looks like uh, from from what the race understands that, that Callum is under contract for next season and you know his next season with Huncos will be announced in, you know, in, you know, pretty soon. So, uh, if, if there's going to be any sort of, um, Callum to, to Ganassi situation, it's going to likely be 2024 or, or beyond that. And then obviously there's Renus VK who, um, we found out over the weekend has, has got, a, a level of exclusivity in his contract, which runs till August the 1st. And then he can speak to, to other teams after that. So if there's no McLaren seat on the table, then, um, it doesn't strike me that he's, top of Ganassi's list or someone that Ganassi are desperate to get in their car personally. But um, the options are dwindling for, for Ganassi. And if they want to put someone in, who's going to be in this car for, for two or three years. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's easy just to make this decision for Ganassi, is it? But there's, there's so many things going on behind the scenes, like sponsors, maybe a sponsor doesn't want to put Bourdais in the car for a year. You know, they want to build a brand and they, they, they don't want to see, uh, you know, a stopgap 
stopgap year in terms of what they're doing you know i'm just i'm just hypothesizing but there's what i'm trying to say is, is it's a very complicated situation and there might be different options that ganassi need to to pursue so vk has been good at the 500 where we know ganassi likes to to scout his drivers they have to be good at the 500 if he's going to sign them and uh, especially in qualifying renus has been extremely strong and then i guess the other outside option is david malukas who's really hit his stride after the Indy 500 and really impressing people with with his performances. And I guess the, the interesting aspect here is that there's been some talk over previous weeks and months that that Dale Coyne and, and HMD would like to expand to, to three cars and, and run Linus Lundqvist from, from Indy Lights. But unless there's another Honda team scaling back and offering an engine back, then uh, an expansion for Dale Coyne looks extremely unlikely at the moment. So if Ganassi came calling, maybe uh, the fact that David Malukas's dad, who you know is uh, uh, at least a part owner, if not the the owner of the the HMD trucking company that that sponsors Dale Coin, maybe he'd like to see you know David loaned out to Ganassi and then to bring uh, Linus into into Dale Coin. We know Dale Coin are you know a, a big um, a big admirers of of Linus and and so is Honda. I don't think there's any you know there's there's nothing on the Honda side that doesn't want to see Linus get the promotion it's just a, a case of there not being enough engines to go around at the minute and and things being difficult there so uh, i guess those are the those are the three kind of interesting topics of conversation from from the weekend about where Ganassi could go if it wants a a short term but long term solution um but you know I, I think for me JR, i think we've already made it clear i think i think Bordet goes in the car for a year and then you throw every little last penny from down the sofa at Colton Herter and 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 hope to the Lord that he's willing to to leave Andretti and and go in search of of pastures new. But that's a that's a fairy tale for a, another podcast. I think we should also outline some breaking news, Joe, which I'm not going to bring you in on because you've not had a chance to to check out all the court documents, and that's you know extremely important in a in a case like this. But the the news has broken that Chip Ganassi Racing has initiated legal proceedings and is suing its own driver, Alex Pillow. So that's a, a very interesting story that we'll be keeping an eye on over the uh, over the coming uh, weeks, I imagine. Uh, Ganassi is requesting that a hearing be held before the end of August to, to solve this matter. Uh, there's a number of documents that are excluded from, from public viewing, which includes the, the exact complaint that Ganassi has. Uh, but in the, the documents that we can see as part of this case uh, that are listed are McLaren's press release that announces uh, signing Alex Pillow, McLaren's tweet announcing that Pillow has joined them, uh, and also uh, two tweets where Alex um, refuses or refutes a quote from himself in the Ganassi press release and states that he had notified the team he wasn't racing in 2023. I'm sure people will recognise those tweets. Those are the ones that came out on July the 12th, shortly after Ganassi had announced its contract extension with Alex Pillow. And then uh, McLaren announced uh, hours later that it had signed him. So, uh, so yeah, apparently the, the, ca- the case files... Um, or the case was filed on July 25th and um, yeah, uh, Polo and uh, his uh, racing entity Alpa have had their summons. So there'll be uh, some some back and two on this. Um, Alex has to jump in the car this weekend and, and race the number 10 at Indianapolis. So that's going to be a, a difficult one for him. And there's no sort of easy way at this moment to, to say how this is going to conclude, but it's definitely the first time I can remember in recent memory that team has assumed it's sued its own driver. All right. So moving on, I guess, from the the chatter at the track to the actual event itself over the course of the weekend, uh, what did you think of the whole thing? I mean, obviously we, we were talking about 
and seeing a lot from the work that High V has done, you know, it seems like a part of this is a bit of like the expansion process of, of Penske Entertainment having a bit more to do with what's going on at some of these events. Um, you know, it, it looked it looked pretty epic. I mean, I guess I would say that uh, Iowa Speedway has often been a place that has been able to pack the grandstands, but this looked like at a whole nother level in terms of what was going on over the weekend. What was it like to be there in person? Obviously, I wasn't there before, but from people I've spoke to who have been there before, you know, it's it's like a a level of prestige that the place maybe hasn't had before and just a yeah a brilliant job by by everyone involved you know i remember bobby rayhall being you know particularly um instrumental in making all this happen originally and, and playing a big part of it and then since then obviously you know high v and, and penske entertainment have come to the fore as a feature i wrote recently on uh, the hyphen race.com about indycar being a bit more willing to to host races and do different things even in, even in departments like uh, centralizing tickets and, and stuff like that you know just being a bit more willing to get involved and, and help events run and uh, increase their popularity and, and and profitability i imagine is probably their uh, most important factor in that but yeah hive did an absolutely phenomenal job they had um they had like some mini grocery stores set up in, in porter cabins if you weren't watching the tv coverage I, I saw james hinchcliffe go through those and and buy some stuff and yeah um i'm sure there's places like road america where that would be extremely popular and something that they could you know roll out to, to people who are camping and stuff like that a great a great idea um just generally the, they put some hospitality units up at, at turn one which were, gave a really good view of the track and uh, they were they, they looked really fantastic and then the, the volunteers to run the race were all high V employees. So for, for them to give up their, their time, you know, their it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a staff owned company, but still for them to give up their time and, and to be at the track and helping out all really lovely people, really helpful and, you know, made the, made the event run as it did. So yeah, it was a, I don't want to, you know, uh, go over the, what, you know, what was already said on the TV coverage too much, but it's, it's very clear that, you know, high V, in my opinion, and I think this has been said by some of their executives and stuff, you know, doing this not out of looking for a return on investment, which in which helped it to go to another level, I think, because, you know, there wasn't any thought about what they were going to get back. They're literally just trying to get their name out there. And this was an advertising, you know, an advertising deal basically for them. And they they put a lot into it. I think I've seen some some big numbers of millions quoted about how much money they've they've put into this event but hopefully they continue to do so and that they're rewarded because i think the i don't i don't recall what the highest temperature was on the saturday but for an englishman it was hot and uh <laughs> the the grandstands were still packed and you know we had gwen stefani and, and blake shelton on sunday and florida georgia florida georgia line and tim mcgraw who is ripped by the way i was well surprised by that he's he's a ripped dude joseph newgarden was admiring him as well um <laughs> yeah just uh, saying something yeah exactly yeah exactly but yeah really really cool event very well promoted um only, only other thing to add that i didn't really see mentioned anywhere else was i was surprised by how good it was based on the fact that that was the first time they were doing it like it's a good point it didn't strike me as people doing an event for the first time and especially as it was quite a complicated organization structure with with you know Ray Hall's original involvement and then Penske getting involved and Hy-Vee and the, the Iowa Speedway itself it didn't strike me as a particularly easy kind of situation to to deliver like a first class event and they were still able to do that in the first year so it'll be really cool to see what they do next year and if they're able to to keep that up but yeah ab absolutely great and 
any criticism on social media for whatever reason was unfounded in my opinion i saw a few people saying oh you know they've given tickets away or the employees got tickets so it's not really a sellout but i think um if you go back to the cart days and have a look at how much uh, how many tickets were being given away then i think you'd uh, have a different opinion on that yeah i mean i think that it it's butts in seats is the things that is the thing that matters ultimately here and so uh and and i mean for whatever for music venues and all this kind of stuff like giving away free tickets doesn't mean that people are going to show up so that's uh i think that's definitely a, a big part of what was going on there it definitely looked packed it looked really well done i think it's a great point that everybody's doing it for the first time that's not always an easy thing to pull off there's always it's it's easy to have some kind of shenanigans or like things that are clearly not thought out well enough the first time around just not going through it so that's great to hear. I also want to give out give a shout out in particular to our pal Hinchtown um, on the broadcast lately. I thought he's he was really good over the course of these races this weekend. Uh, has just been getting better and better in terms of the insight that he brings to the table. Um, and uh, so I don't Hinch. I don't know if you're if you're listening to other podcasts these days, but um, well done over the weekend. And we're we're always bummed not to see you in a race car of some kind, but. Nice work in the booth for sure. We'll get him on, but hopefully he doesn't come on and embarrass us on our own podcast. Like he, <laughs> like he, I don't want to say he embarrasses the other people on the on the TV broadcast, but he he, he definitely looks like a person who's been doing it a lot longer and gives a lot of you know <laughs> fantastic insight that isn't always necessarily there. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Big shout out to Hinchtown. Let's uh, let's move on to Colton Herter, who had a bit of a tragic weekend in Iowa again. Um, more more bad luck electronics in the first race was the the problem there but we're going to the indie road course this weekend jr where he won last time out and uh, i guess it's not the last time he came to indianapolis the last time he came to indianapolis he was upside down in in practice for the indy 500 and then having a bit of a, a nightmare indy 500 which as a funny aside by the way the uh the zibs colton herter's band that he plays the drums for who uh <laughs> i saw this who are playing a gig on on thursday before this weekend's race have taken the picture of colton's upside down car and used it as their tour poster which instantly makes it the coolest band tour poster ever in my opinion like that is <laughs> not not only is that race car upside down on a gig poster it's also like driver like accepting a bit of like humor about a bad event that's happened and turning that into a, a positive, which is very much like Colton in fairness and something that I thought was really cool. You saw this, you saw this gig poster, did you, JR? I did. Yeah. I was definitely impressed. I was like, Hey, do what you guys got to do. I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate the uh, willingness to just like roll with it basically. Um, yeah, I guess I'm like finding myself just bummed for Colton this year. We've obviously talked at times about how there's been some sort of self-inflicted penalties over the course of the year. You know, Long Beach this year is the obvious one that stands out. Indies, I, I guess it's not like it's anybody else's fault, but it's kind of just something that happens and it was bad timing for it to be on carb day. Um, you know, he's he's at this point basically out of the championship hunt he's more than 100 points out like it's just not he could keep go on a tear here and there's just too many guys that are ahead of him by enough that it's it's i i'd say for him he's just out of the window um and that's unfortunate because i feel like you know he and he and scott mclaughlin are two guys that had had a few races gone a little bit differently for both of them 
that they could they could both still be up in the thick of the championship battle here and that would have definitely made this like much more intriguing going down the final stretch so i think colton's role here in the championship is basically just spoiler at this point you know like is he is he going to be a guy that just goes off and rips some poles and wins over the course of the you know, he's we're heading into a bunch of races that he's been very good at in the past so there's there's no weakness on the calendar if we're looking at the remaining events for Colton it's Indy GP where he obviously won last time out granted there's some kind of extenuating circumstances there it'll be interesting to see if it's just if it's dry all weekend exactly what his his and Andretti Autosports pace is is there but then from there it's like man could you pick a bunch of events that he'd be any better at you know nashville where he just crushed everybody before he obviously had his accident at the end of the race last year gateway he's been super good at gateway uh you know whether he's gotten the results there or not he's been really fast um you know and then and then going down the the home stretch of portland at laguna and laguna both as places that he could easily go you know lights to flag so unfortunate that he's just out of the picture as much but uh you know it'll be interesting to see we talked about you know on some previous events like i think it was after toronto just having this kind of more slightly more laid back perspective on how to approach the rest of the year like we're just here to kind of do our thing as opposed to having the pressure of needing to extract at the absolute maximum out of every race um you know, this one, this one went sideways for them. Anyway, I was surprised that Andretti wasn't better, frankly, at Iowa, just altogether. Like, uh, you know, I guess there's a part of part and part of my surprise there is just that, you know, like Jeremy, if you go back to when Joseph Newgarden's dominance started at Iowa, it was with Jeremy Millis at ECR. And, Jeremy is now Alexander Rossi's engineer. They went through a couple of seasons where the Chevy, like in the aero kit days, the Chevys were just better than the Hondas. So that was kind of a part of where the Penske's had an advantage, had like a more distinct advantage for like a brief period of time. But since then, everybody's back on basically even footing. It would it would seem in terms of what we see from the two engine manufacturers. Now it's just engines and it's nothing else. Uh, I, I'm I'm a little bit surprised that that hasn't all, I guess, manifested it. I, I'm surprised that even just Jeremy and that squad haven't like managed to kind of make this something that's that's more competitive over the course of the last couple of races. But they haven't, and um, you know, and Colton again fell victim to something that was basically outside of his control here. Yeah, I know Jeremy Millis is keen to end that kind of run of, of bad form since he's been with Alexander Rossi at Iowa. I think Andretti were likely hurt by doing the later tests. So we had the, the earlier test where I think they had 20 cars altogether in that first one. And then uh, there was a later test where the conditions were a bit different and that was the one that Andretti were at. So I wonder if they just uh, fell foul of the conditions a little bit there. And yeah, I, I guess just on Colton, it'd just be, you know, it'd be nice to see him get the the run of form that he deserves really after um you know he took some flack in the first half of the season from people like me about his performances and and how he was seeing out races um especially while in 
front running positions and recently he seems to have improved massively so we'll keep an eye on that at a place where he won earlier this season speaking of which we're returning to the indianapolis road course this weekend where the nascar cup series and xfinity series will also be in action alongside the indycar series jr i know you won't be at indianapolis but i'm sure you'll be uh, watching and enjoying the double duty action from home yeah, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping for weather as much to just see the NASCAR guys have to go around in the rain. Okay, so I have a question for you though. So you're going to be there this weekend. Is there any is there, are there any NASCAR drivers that you're keen to chat with? Well, as you know, JR, I'm a, a big NASCAR fan, so looking forward to speaking to all of them really. But um Kyle Busch and, and Denny Hamlin having been uh, disqualified last weekend at Pocono, they'll be uh, top of the agenda for a lot of people to <laughs> to have a chat to them and and maybe Kyle Larson uh, after uh, yeah after it was announced that that Santino Ferrucci would be a, a possible replacement for Joseph Newgarden. By the way, not on my bingo card for the IndyCar series this year for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll uh, I think we'll leave that that one there and, and move on. But Jenna Fryer had tweeted uh, before that had come out to say who do people think you know should get that seat or, or who would it be cool to see you know, step into that seat if, if Joseph wasn't available. And, and Kyle Larson had replied with a, a sort of hand-waving uh, hey. emoji. So, yeah, um, yeah, he'd be someone nice to, to see in that seat for sure. I mean, he's used to running like five races on a weekend, so he should be able to, he should do fine. He's probably got a dirt track race and this cup race. And he's like, oh, I could fit in an IndyCar race here. It's fine. Yeah, he's used to turning up at races and, and taking everybody's money with his, his dominant performances, isn't he? So... <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's a maybe that's a good shout. Well, that's all for this week. Uh, make sure you leave us a review and subscribe, and leave us a rating on your favourite podcast platform of choice. We very much need those reviews and, and love those reviews. So let us know what you think of the pod. Hopefully, it's five star worthy. And if it's not, or you've got something that you want to ask us about, or anything that you want to talk about, anything to do with IndyCar you can email us podcasts that's podcasts with an s at the end at the hyphen race.com you can also send in any questions in an audio format that we can then play on the podcast so if you want to join us and and chat with jr and i in a, a virtual setting then please do so we'd love to hear it make sure you check out the hyphen race.com for all your latest indycar news and features and we'll be back next week to review the indianapolis road course race Athletic.